Welcome to Think Biblically, Conversations on Faith and Culture, a podcast from Talbot School of Theology here at Biola University. I'm your host, Scott Ray, Dean of Faculty and Professor of Christian Ethics. And I'm your co-host, Sean McDowell, Professor of Christian Apologetics. We're here today with our special guest, longtime editor of World Magazine, uh, Marvin Olasky, uh, taught journalism at the University of Texas for tw- almost 25 years, also a professor at the King's College, Patrick Henry College, senior fellow at the Acton Institute. You've been editor of World Magazine for more than 30 years. He's the author of 28 books, including what I think maybe maybe he's best known for the book entitled The Tragedy of American Compassion. The thing that I found most interesting about Marvin is that he, throughout his career, has visited more than 79 major league baseball stadiums and spring training baseball stadiums. So uh, an avid baseball fan to boot, we probably shouldn't get him started too much on the ba- on the baseball subject. But uh, we're here to talk about his, his new book entitled Lament for a Father. Uh, so Marvin, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, delighted to have you with us today. Well, thank you for asking me. Glad to be here. Yeah, this book on fathers is really different from most of your other books. Uh, because most of your other books are, are about the relationship between faith and culture, uh, journalism, things like that. Why did you decide to write this particular book, and why did you call it a lament? The actual writing started after I wrote a column for World based on uh, the movie Field of Dreams and and my own experience. I wrote about how uh, I had one almost catch lifetime with my father, and it did not turn out well. Uh, he, we never had another one. And that was pretty sad. It was a lament of a column. And the reader response, probably the third most letters I've ever gotten in a column came really? there. And lots hmm. of people writing about their own experiences with their dads and the, the black holes they, they face in some ways as they think back. So I started to think, hey, this is something I, I can do that will uh, push me to do research and learn some things that I didn't know, but also be helpful to other people. What kind of man was your father? And like, and also what early events in his life shaped who he became? He was a, a very solitary person, uh, liked to read a lot, um, did not particularly want to socialize with, uh, with others. Uh, and... What I found interesting, the more I learned about him, is that um, as a teenager, he was hugely ambitious. And uh, that changed. When when I was growing up, uh, he really just liked to stay home and read science fiction and mystery books. Uh, the, the, uh, the marriage was not a particularly happy one in lots of ways, but they did stick together with each other, which I look back at and I'm thankful for. But uh, the thing I think that really changed him, or well, that started to change him, uh, grew out of the experience he had uh, first applying to Harvard University, uh, then getting in and having changes. Because what I didn't know until I got the records from Harvard was that he actually applied twice. He graduated from Malden High School. Malden is a, a working class suburb at that time, about seven miles north of Boston. He applied and was rejected. And one of the reasons I suspect he was rejected is because there was a lot of anti-Semitism at Harvard at that time. And he uh, had recommendations from people that were highly connected with his Jewish upbringing. Um, 
recommendations from neighbors. He he has the wisdom of the rabbis of yore. Uh, he's a fine Hebrew scholar. Those were exactly the wrong types the wrong type of recommendations to have to try to get into Harvard at that point. But somehow he was able after graduating from Malden High School, he was able to take a special postgraduate year at Boston Latin, which was the elite high school in Boston, uh, a feeder school for Harvard. And there he showed that he could do that work, but also he got recommendations such as he's a, he's a manly fellow. He's a person of good character mm. who will have a good influence on his chums. Those types of things. Uh, the, the Jewish aspect was completely gone. He essentially remade himself in that year in order to get into Harvard, and he succeeded. So that showed the ambition he had at that time. And it was strange that uh, something happened, several things happened, I think, that just uh, knocked that out of him. So before we get to those, uh, I want to go back a, a generation before your father. Your grand, your, you describe your grandfather as a fairly serious Orthodox Jew. Uh, your father had a, a, a bit different view of Judaism as, as he developed as an adult. How was that different and then the, the, you described some things in college that sort of changed his view, his changed his religious views. Uh, and how did how did those impact him? Right. Well, uh, my grandfather, an Orthodox Jew from the uh, from the Ukraine, part of the Russian Empire at that time, he came to this country in 1913 and continued as an as an Orthodox Jew with some Hasidic overtones. That is. Uh, uh, some emotion rather than pure rationality, but a deep commitment to the the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament. And as far as I know, my father growing up uh, had that. He went to the synagogue all the time uh, with my grandfather. At Harvard, he faced a different type of situation. He, uh, after starting out as a pre-med major, but finding he had very little interest in chemistry and biology, uh, uh, he switched to anthropology. Harvard had a uh, an anthropology professor named uh, Houghton, who was glamorized, uh, the, probably the most favorite uh, professor of lots of people. Life magazine had six pages on Houghton of Harvard. He wow. had what sound like really fascinating lectures. Uh, everyone wanted to be like Houghton and be in Houghton's good graces. And Houghton was a very straightforward uh, Darwinian. Uh, believed in uh, evolution over long periods of time. And my father wanted to do well in school. He was helping to go to graduate school in anthropology and work directly with Houghton. And in his senior year, as far as I can see, he faced a real challenge. He had to write a senior thesis. And was he going to stick with the theology of his father or was he going to do something that Houghton would like? And I've eventually got his thesis that he wrote, and it was wow. straightforward Darwinian. Uh, the ancient Hebrews weren't any different from the other people of the Near East. Uh, they just learned from the Babylonians. There was nothing about the Bible being inspired by God. So, yeah, he just basically went over to the other side in order to uh, stay in the uh, in the good graces of and have Houghton admit him to graduate school. Now that you describe in the book also that that anthropology program that he studied and was also connected to the eugenics movement in the United States in the in the nineteen twenties. How did how did that impact him as a Jewish person? Well, I would have thought it would impact him negatively because 
Orthodox Jews, like Christians, believe that uh, we're all created in God's image, and thus we all have significance. But Houghton, while being a eugenicist, was somewhat of an unusual uh, eugenicist. He had biases against uh, people from Africa, people from Asia, but he really liked Jews. Uh, he encountered lots of smart Jews, and so he thought that that Jews were ahead on the evolutionary curve, and I suspect my father enjoyed hearing that. Talk about the experience of World War II and how that shaped him as a person. Well, he um, he had a deferment. He uh, when World War II started, he worked alongside his father, my grandfather, uh, making boilers for submarines. He could have sat out the war uh, very comfortably, but he heard what Hitler was doing to Jews in Europe. He enlisted, basically uh, went to uh, training in Florida must have been a real jolt because he'd always lived at home. He, he had been a commuter to Harvard for economic reasons. And suddenly he's there with very little privacy. Uh, the staple food was pork, uh, and he had to eat it or, or starve. I think that was probably hard on him in lots of ways, but he apparently worked hard. He, was, he, he packed parachutes for flyers, and the war ended. But he didn't come home right away. He was in Europe for another six months, and at least as they understand, as I understand it, the way the army worked, he didn't just sit around. They put him to work. He had a, as, as Harvard testing showed, he had a, a good knowledge of German, which came partly from growing up with Yiddish, highly related to German. And I can't prove this because the military records were all destroyed in a fire in St. Louis about 20 years ago, and he never talked about it. But other people who knew German uh, particularly if they were Jewish, who were brought in as translators to go to the concentration camps and speak with refugees and, and help them resettle. That's, I can't say for sure, but that's almost certainly what he did during those six months. And if indeed he did that, he would have seen, when he went there right after the end of the war, he would have seen the dead bodies stacked up like firewood. He would have seen big jars with hands and feet uh, he would have, he would have seen some really brutal, grisly things, and he would have heard how terrible things were. Uh, but he never told uh, either my brother or myself or my mother, as far as I know. He never talked about that. He was kind of like if you see Law and Order or other programs. He was the he was the cop or the detective who kept everything to himself, which I think wreaks some psychological havoc, but protected uh, his wife and and my brother and me. I I never grew up with any sense of anti-Semitism, whereas if he had just told me the stories he had seen, if he had told me stories about what he had seen, I suspect I would have, and that might have been an impediment to my eventually becoming a Christian. Now, you described s several things that uh, transformed him from an ambitious person into... Well, I think the term he uses an underachieving father. Anything else besides what took place in World War II that uh, affected that transformation? Well, strike one was changing his theology to make uh, Professor Hooten like him. And then he went to graduate school in anthropology at Harvard and after this first year was kicked out. Um, and I could, I can speculate on on why he was a little bit socially awkward, as, as I am too. Uh, and Hooten really wanted evangelists, not for, not for God, but for 
Putin's version of anthropology. He wanted them to go out and, for, and found anthropology departments around the country. And that was not something my father was really capable of doing. There may have been other reasons too, but you know, strike one, I think, was, was being, after really changing his thinking, uh, was being kicked out of Harvard. Strike two, I think, was seeing the aftermath uh, of World War II. And then strike three, um, his marriage was very unhappy. My, my mother grew up poor. She thought she was going to be marrying someone who had a PhD from Harvard, and they wouldn't have a whole lot of money, but they'd have enough, and there would be a lot of prestige. She would travel around with him. She would be the wife of the distinguished, world-famous anthropology professor, and none of that happened. And we were not not dead poor, but uh, but pretty poor. And I don't think she ever really forgave him for frustrating her in that way, being not the person she expected she would marry. So lots of nagging, lots of nastiness, and uh, I think that was strike three. It's it's one thing to be turned down by Harvard and see these brutal things in the war. But then to be turned down by your wife was particularly hard, and and I think that was uh, he, that what that was that was strike three, and he just gave up at that point. Hmm. What was this experience like for you, with uh, the way you describe an underachieving father and at least minimally a disappointed mother? How did that process your life, self identity, your faith, and affect you in other ways? Well, it probably turned me into more of a reader because I could escape the the home discord by reading books, particularly I, I loved reading books on American history as I was growing up. Um, so it had that influence. It probably also made me in a strange way, somewhat of a, of a peacemaker. I would hope as Christians, we all are, but when you have a, an angry mother and a, and an escaping father, I think I was the one who wanted to say, is there any way we can all get along? And that probably influenced me when I was on the, uh, I'm, a, I'm an elder in the Presbyterian Church in, in America, and on the session, the, the, the elder board of the, of the church, for, for 10 years, we had, uh, we had people from different perspectives, all, all Christians, but understanding different things. And I, 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 was, I was usually the moderate there trying to bring peace. And I was the, the clerk, which meant I would craft the resolutions. And I tried to have resolutions that everyone could sign off, off for. And that probably continues in other ways, true. I try, I, uh, I try in, my, in my awkward and not really sophisticated way to try to be a, uh, a peacemaker at times. And uh, my, my columns sometimes are... Are, are not Pacific, but uh, at least in my personal relationships, I, I, I want people to get along, and I'm often unsuccessful in that. Mm-hmm. So, Marvin, let's talk a little bit about your, your own experience. Um, you know, you were raised in a, in a Jewish home, uh, drifted away from that, and eventually came to faith with a, with a stop at atheism and Leninism. Uh, tell us a little bit about that journey, and I'm, I'm particularly interested in how your father reacted to your conversion. Well, uh, real briefly, um, I followed what is a tradition among many um, American Jewish teenagers of the past half century or so, uh, bar mitzvah at 13, atheist at 14. Uh, oh, wow. I read, I read when I was 14... Wow. Uh, I read Sigmund Freud's The Future of an Illusion, where he t- 
talks about God as imaginary and people perhaps making up the stuff about God because they, they're seeking a father. If their earthly father disappointed them, they have a heavenly, heavenly father. And that, of course, rang true to my experience, but I didn't want to just be making up a, a heavenly father. So I thought that was, that was pretty silly stuff. And I was at age 14 wiser than that. Uh, and then I read a book uh, by H.G. Wells, the science fiction writer, but he also wrote a, a best-selling history of the world uh, which also is straight Darwinian, straight atheist, and I just bought that entirely. So atheist of 14, uh, I had eight, at age 18, I went to Yale University and was uh, a liberal at that point, but I kept moving left and left and left. Uh, a Marxist uh, then actually joined the, uh, the Communist Party, and I won't go through that whole story that did some travel around the world and so forth, but uh, yeah, in in um, in November, actually November first, nineteen seventy three. I'm twenty three years old, and God, in His remarkable providence and mercy, just uh, in a very strange eight hour experience, made me aware that He exists, and that communism, therefore, which is based on atheism, communism is wrong. Hmm. So I left the Communist Party. Didn't want to. I <laughs> I knew that. Becoming a Christian was semi-suicidal in the academic environment. So I really ran away from that in lots of ways, but God in his mercy kept pursuing me. Uh, just just real briefly, a couple of examples of, of how this worked. You have to have a good reading knowledge of a foreign language to get a PhD. I think that's still the case. And I had forgotten my childhood Hebrew. I was never good at my high school French. Uh, I had learned some Russian traveling on a Soviet freighter and across the so Trans-Siberian Railroad. So I kept studying Russian. That was the language I was going to use to get mm. my PhD. And one night in my room in 1974, and this was after leaving the Communist Party, but I was far enough in Russian I wanted to keep going with it. I picked up a book that had been given to me a couple of years before, a sort of a souvenir. It was a copy of the New Testament in Russian, which I hadn't looked at before, oh. but I picked it up for reading practice. And, uh, you know, I'm probably the only person who really loved you know, at the beginning of Matthew, where there are all the begats, uh, son of, and so forth, because I could read through that chapter really quickly. I got it. And then everything else I had to read very, very slowly. My knowledge of Russian wasn't very good. But by the time I got to the Sermon, when I got to the Sermon on the Mount, I thought, wow, this is really special. Of course, as a communist, I was told if, if someone hits you on the, on the cheek, kill him. Uh, and here, mm. here Jesus is saying, turn the other cheek. I thought, well, this isn't this isn't human stuff. This is coming from God. It just really impressed me. And again, I was just doing it for reading practice. Hmm. Later, at the end of 1974, I was assigned. I was in graduate school at the University of Michigan. I'm assigned to teach a course on early American literature, which I'd never studied. Um, I majored in American studies and history in college, but I never studied early American literature. I didn't want to have anything to do with those Puritans, but. <laughs> The senior professors, none of them wanted to teach it. They wanted to teach about Polynesian literature and so forth. So I had to do it. Someone had to do it. It was on the syllabus. So I had to start reading Puritan literature. What, what are, what's early American literature? Lots of Puritan sermons. These are dead white males from 300 plus years ago. But uh, they had an impact on me because I grew up with the prejudice of thinking that Christians are stupid people who worship Christmas trees. And... Hmm, uh, wow. Uh, you read the Puritans, 
you can love them, you can hate them, but boy, it is hard to consider them stupid. Hmm. Uh, they thought hard and logically, they analyzed things. You know, all the early Puritans and Jonathan Edwards often considered the greatest philosopher in American history, uh, just, just really big intellects that impressed me a lot. So yeah, this was breaking down my prejudices. Uh, and still I kept running from it, but uh, finally uh, started going to church. I figured I should find out what what Christians today believe since all I knew is what, what they believed 300 years ago. And uh, I'll tell you finally, and this, is, this may be useful for people who worry sometimes about witnessing to intellectual types, you know, what will I say to them and so forth. The, uh, the deacon of visitation of this little church came over to my apartment and said this was his whole evangelistic appeal. Uh, after I'd been going to that church for several months, he said, you believe this stuff, don't you? And I said reluctantly, yeah, I guess I do. And he said, well, then you better join up, which meant getting baptized and so forth. And so that was, that's just about the weakest profession of faith, my profession, <laughs> you can imagine. But yeah, that was the, that was the beginning. And, and God mercifully uh, uh, has overlooked my, my evil and arrogance and ignorance mm. and taught me things over the 45 years since then. Marvin, I'm curious if you're familiar with the work by Paul Vitz called Faith of the Fatherless. And uh-huh. Yes, read and, that maybe about, I'm not, mm. I'm not really current on it, but probably 20 years ago I read that. And uh, Okay. Yeah, yeah, I, I, re- I remember being, fa- being very favorably impressed by it. Uh, more than that, I'd probably have to look at it again, <laughs> given my memory. But, uh, but yeah, good book. Yeah, that's fair. His basic premise was that some of the great atheists like... Uh, uh, Marx and Freud and Camus either had kind of dead, distant, or harsh fathers, and it moved right. them in many ways towards atheism. How would that intersect with your story? Did that just ring true to you? That rings true to me. And um, yeah, so I was I was an atheist for 10 or so years, nine, nine years. And uh, yeah, except for God's inscrutable mercy and, and reaching out to me, uh, I probably still would be. And uh, yeah, that, that, that does ring true to me. I think I became a Christian purely through God's grace and reading particularly the, the New Testament had a long-term effect on me because uh, I, I don't know if it was an emotional appeal. I suppose it was in some ways, but in many ways it was primarily an intellectual appeal. This just really... Uh, made so much sense to me that even though I wanted to deny it, I just could not keep denying it. How did your father react to your conversion? Well, he was somewhat prepared for it, in some way not totally surprised, because uh, first I had married uh, a, a non-Christian, a, but, but someone from a Christian background, a very liberal United Methodist background, like Hillary Clinton's background. And although... She had as far to come, my wife had as far to come as me, coming from a different direction in order to, to affirm Christ. Still, I think in my father's eyes, well, she comes from a Christian family, she's a Christian. I mean, again, a very, a very theologically liberal Christian family that pretty much discarded Christ. But I think in my father's view, I am, I am marrying a shiksa, uh, a, a, a Christian. 
So I think it it was not a total surprise for him when, because I had hinted at this in Mm -hmm. some ways, that I was no longer an atheist, that I was thinking about God. uh, But still, when I actually did it, um, this was this was not something he was pleased with. Although, again, he never. Uh, at that point, I was teaching in California, and I told him this probably in a phone call. We didn't talk a whole lot, and and we visited several times after that. But uh, um, I occasionally brought it up, uh, and he always changed the subject. So, yeah, I am surmising that he was not. Uh, uh, pleased with us at all, but uh, it was just something he didn't want to talk about, and I did want to talk about it. Uh, probably should have talked about it more, but uh, but that was that. How do your experience with your father that you share in the book and you've shared with us here influence your own relationship with your children? Good question. In the simplest ways, and this is this is pretty superficial, but in the simplest ways, I was sure to do with them what I wish my father had done with me in the sense of taking trips, seeing things, going to baseball games, going to Disneyland, uh, coming to my baseball games with with our four sons. I think uh, because they were spaced apart somewhat, uh, I think I had 24 straight years of going to Little League games. And yeah, I, w- I wish my father had come to my my games. Not that I was much of an athlete, but I would have I would have liked that. So, in those superficial things, but still meaningful things. I mean, I I I went to their games. We 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 took long car trips together. So those those types of things uh, that I wish my father had done with me. Now, when you go deeper, and you know, we never know what kind of effect this is going to have on our children. But uh, we always had dinner together. We we had Bible reading. We went to church together. I certainly tried to to be influential in that way, while still understanding that it's it's uh, even even with what we call a covenant child, it's still it's still God's doing. My father moved from well his father's orthodoxy to from orthodox synagogues then to conservative synagogues, which is middle of the road Judaism to reform synagogues, which is the equivalent of very liberal Christianity, uh, to nothing. And he would still talk with me about the importance of Jewish culture, but at the center of it, namely God, he did not have that belief. And I perceived this as uh, as a donut. There was nothing in the middle. And again, I was I was believing Sigmund Freud and believing H.G. Wells but who knows if there had been some counter influence, maybe that would have had some meaning, but there really wasn't because he had he had apparently sadly uh lost his faith and and just not replaced it with anything that I was aware of so so uh yeah very very sad and um I am sorry that i I did not speak out more and and perhaps help uh I don't know if it would have, but I should have tried harder and thought more about him than about myself. Well, and I think you, you described that, uh, you know, your view of your father changed over time as to see them more as individuals with struggles as opposed to people who just existed to meet your own needs. Uh, and that's, I think, a that's a really, it's a helpful and f- formative, you know, change, you know, in the way you view your own parents. Uh, but one final question, 
What advice would you have for dads today based on your experience with your own father? Well, a couple of things. It's, uh, it's important for fathers who are believers. It's important for children to see the, the reality of the belief in your daily life. Uh, for example, if you are a Christian and you are pro-life, it makes an impact on your children if they see you not just talking, but walking. It made an impact on our children when, for example, there was a, a young woman going through a crisis pregnancy and she came and lived in our house for nine months. I think it made an impact seeing our involvement in pro-life activities, our involvement in church, that we thought this was important, that you know we were consistent in our in our Bible reading and prayer, so, so the kids the kids saw some some reality in that, and that's important. That's really important. And then, again, on the superficial level, at least at least take the time to, to do at least with your kids what your dad what you wish your dad had done with them. Now you may find out that your children actually wish you had done other things with them, and they and they didn't speak out. But uh, you know. My kids and I, we went to football games together and uh, um, a lot of things like that. Now, I wish in retrospect that, and I did not come from a, from a hunting or fishing family, so I didn't know how to do any of that and didn't do that with my kids. And I wish I had, I wish I had taken the effort to do some of that so that there'd still be, along with you know, just visiting each other and talking with each other, there'd be a common activity in which we could engage. Most of my kids are, are baseball fans and so forth, so we can, and we can talk about that. And uh, we live, we, we tried to be consistent in living in, in one city, Austin, for a long time. So they're University of Texas football fans. And we can talk about that, but we don't, we don't have those same prized activities like hunting and fishing together. So that's something I would recommend that I, that I did not do. But uh, yeah, just being there and going to their activities, but particularly in terms of Christian faith, um, showing a consistency that you really do believe this and it affects your life, I think is really important for them. Even then, of course, no guarantees, but at least they are, they are aware that you're not just a talker. Well, Marvin, I, what I so appreciate about your book is just your, your vulnerability where you describe you know, your own family and your family of origin in pretty realistic terms. Um, commend your book to our listeners, Lament for a Father. It's really a terrific read and got lot, lots of things that I think would generate, you know, people's reflection on their own, their own parents and their own parenting if they have children. So it's a really valuable work. And, you know, even, even if, you know, our backgrounds are completely different than yours, uh, I think there's there's a lot to learn here from uh, your experience with your own dad. So thanks so much for writing the book and uh, for coming on with us. Really appreciate it. Well, thanks. And just one last word. I mean, I've talked about uh, the weaknesses of my father, but I really do look at him as a hero in some ways in that he, he didn't tell us about what he saw mm -hmm. in the concentration camps. That was very helpful for our psychology. He kept that within himself which was a, a brave thing to do, psychologically damaging perhaps in some ways, but still heroic, and his willingness to, to do that I very much appreciate. Well, I also, I also want to commend to our listeners, if you're not familiar with World Magazine, 
uh, it's a terrific source of news through a distinctly Christian set of lenses that uh, Marvin's been the editor of for more than 30 years now. So it's a terrific, terrific publication that we'd encourage you to take a look at as well. This has been an episode of the podcast, Think Biblically, Conversations on Faith and Culture. Think Biblically podcast is brought to you by Tablet School of Theology at Biola University, offering programs in Southern California and online, including our master's program in Christian apologetics, now offered fully online. Visit biola.edu slash Talbot in order to learn more. If you enjoyed our conversation today with Marvin Olasky around his book, Lament for a Father, give us a rating on your podcast app and share it with a friend. Thanks so much for listening, and remember, think biblically about everything.